If you look at the finches, you got to ask the question, how does it work and how did that get here? One is an operations question for which repeatable observable science is the right tool. The other is an origins question, how did it get here? That's a past tense question. So for that, you have to use something else. You have to use imagination, if you use your worldview. When I approach this bird, I look at how it works. I can believe in creation, evolution, God, no God. I can believe I came from aliens. I can believe anything. As long as I'm looking at the question, how does this work? My worldview doesn't really play as big of a role. But as soon as I start asking the origins question, how did this thing get here? Now I'm filtering everything I see through what I already perceive and believe. Welcome to the Creation Today Show, where we bring together interviews with experts and solid Bible teaching. Your host, Eric Hovind, affirms the ultimate authority of God's Word, the truth of creation, and why it matters to you. Do you remember where Charles Darwin supposedly developed his theory of evolution? Five points if you thought the Galapagos Islands. Do you remember what animal he was looking at to develop his ideas? Ten point if you got finches. Darwin's finches from the Galapagos Islands set up this idea of evolution. But what if what Darwin really saw was incredible evidence of an intelligent designer? Some amazing design features. We're going to be talking about that along with some other great information with my friend, Dr. Brian Thomas. Dr. Thomas, how are you doing, sir? Eric, I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. Man, I got to tell you, hanging out with you, I learn so much about, about the truth about creation, uh, the science behind it. We are discovering some amazing things. I, I've heard as I argue with, with people online, argue as I have lovely conversations with people online, that no, evolution... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's me arguing. Uh, I love it. Uh, that evolution is a change in allele frequencies over time. And we were having a conversation while we were on campus talking to students in between that and after that about what that really means and is that really possible. So I want to open up this world of genetics and find out, do any of the pillars of evolution still stand? Do any of the things that, that evolution has been holding to and supporting itself with, do any of them still stand? So... Let's jump off and start taking one thing at a time here. I kind of don't even know where to start. There's so many places we can go. But evolution is a change in allele frequencies over time. Okay. What's the reality of that? So uh, what's an allele? Yeah, okay. Let's yeah, start there. I mean, if we're going to talk scientist. about it, we might as well talk about it. Oh, by the way, you, you're, you are a PhD scientist, and you did your work in uh, soft tissue in dinosaur bones. And other fossils. And other fossils. And you've discovered that all throughout the geologic column, from top to bottom, there is similar soft tissue in fossils, similar collagen amounts in fossils all the way through these. Right. The guy is genius, and it's really, really cool to talk to him about the things in science because he can break it down too. Okay, a little background. And he's from ICR, Institute for Creation Research, icr.org. Yes. Okay, all right. Just had to throw that out there. Sorry. Before my um, paleontology-related degree, I also got a, um, a couple degrees in the biological sciences, including biochemistry. So it's, it, it's it. in the biology side of things, I think, that we're focusing today. Yes. And that's, I love that, you know, okay. because it's, uh, it's alive. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's start going through the biology because biology, in just the word biology, many people think, well, biology proves evolution. I mean, you cannot take a biology class without being taught evolution. That is, matter of fact, I remember being at the school board uh, vote in Florida when they were voting in the new definition and they said, evolution is the underlying uh, factor or something like that in all of biology. And they said, that's what we want taught in the public schools. And they, 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 they brought that in. Right. It's similar to what we hear about dinosaurs. Dinosaurs in the age of reptiles that they prove, that is evidence for evolution. Yes. Uh, and similarly, uh, I think uh, biology has been sort of co-opted or, or um, hijacked and yeah. meant to equate with evolution. And Dubjansky, uh, I think it's Dubjansky said it in his famous quote from like 73 or something. Uh, nothing, uh, uh, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Wow. And uh, so you see in that level, it's no longer and a it's no longer becomes a um, an objective search uh, uh, for what's for how creatures work. It then becomes a a subjective interpretation of how creatures got here without a creator. So at that point, it becomes it it, go, it goes less about the science and more about what I want to believe about where I came from. So those are two separate issues. That's and, good. And, and and I think what what we're on about. Let's. And I hope we get to those finches soon. Okay. <laughs> because, because if you look at the finches, right, you, you, you got to ask the question, how does it work? And how did that get here? So those are your, one is an operations question for which repeatable, observable science is the right tool, gives us good answers. The other is an origins question. Mm -hmm. How did it get here? That's a past tense question. So that for that you have to it's you, you have to use something else you have to use imagination you have to use your worldview to interpret you know what you're looking at in today's world how did it get here uh, and so it's a it's a worldview issue and we we have two different worldviews that we're talking about one is the you know the mainstream worldview uh, that Darwin helped to to ensconce firmly into our Western culture and that is not supernatural just natural trust me not supernatural <laughs> no, don't just let it in. natural uh, never mind that he paid some glib lip service to a creator at the end of the book that was just to placate uh, you know his readers and uh, but what he really did was eviscerate uh, the supernatural wow. from the realm of explanatory possibilities uh, 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 to explain how these things got here now what does all that mean um, it, it means when I approach this bird and I look at how it works, I can I can believe in creation, evolution, God, no God. I can believe I came from aliens. I can believe anything, as long as I'm looking at the question, how does this work? Uh, you know, my worldview doesn't really play as big of a role. But as soon as I start asking the origins question, how did this thing get here? Now I'm invoking. I'm filtering everything I see through what I already perceive and believe. And so so we have this mainstream view that says, how did the birds get here? Eons of evolution. Yeah. E eons of slow, gradual change. And that's what Darwin promoted. And so when he went to the Galapagos Islands, when he went to South America and his, his um, voyage on the Beagle, you yes. know, the, the famous ship there, uh, he interpreted, he reinterpreted mostly geology, but a few biological um, observations 
And he said, well, look, the finch beaks on, on this island are a little bit different than the finch beaks on that island. And so, haha, here's an example of what I'm talking about. And it was really more popularized by scientists other than Darwin after Darwin. But they had been convinced of naturalistic, no supernatural, no God in my picture, Darwinism. So they went ahead and interpreted what they're looking at. Okay, there's finch beaks small here, a little bit larger over there. That's, that's, we all agree on that. that that's, that's the observable data. Right. How did it get here? How did this bird get here with a smaller beak? And how did that bird get there? They're definitely related. It's the same bird. By the way, they're now reclassified as tanagers. Mm. But we're going to call them finches because everyone calls them Darwin's okay. finches. <laughs> but we're going to lay it out there just to let you know we're trying to keep up with the latest science and whatever and names. But, uh, uh, but how did they get there? That's a past tense question. All right, so Darwin said, here's how it got there. Eons of slow, gradual change. No creator required. Okay, you said you wanted to talk about genetics. Was, did Darwin have the advantage of knowing genetics? Now, from what I understand, he sequenced their genomes while he was on the Beagle during one of his breaks. Perfect. And uh, no, no, he didn't have <laughs> genetics at all. No, obviously Zero. not. Zero. None. Yeah. He had literally just measurements of external features on a bird right right so we call those phenotypes oh nice phenotype so, he had he had uh let me let's just start over okay uh what i think he had brian was phenotypes <laughs> why yeah. are you laughing I he, saw, <laughs> he saw what he could see yeah. yes uh yeah that's it and, which is great and that's enough by the way that's enough and and that's enough for romans 1 20 to be to be true they are without excuse yeah, because just looking at them, just looking at the phenotypes, because we, what we see. But now we have an extra advantage in our time and day. It's fantastic. We get to see the infrastructure that builds the structure. Mm. We get to see the blueprint that 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 um, the plan that that contains the building code to make a small beak or a big beak. And so, uh, geneticists have been at work with Darwin's finches, and I'm excited to tell. What uh, what they found yeah, what, out? What, is, what does this show? So that you can literally see the information that leads to the small beak and the information that leads to the is that, is, is inform you said blueprint is information another way to say that? Yes, or? absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Good. So we can see the information that leads to the the phenotype. There you go. <laughs> I'm, there you go. I'm gonna get some of these big words, man. I'm gonna start sounding smart. You can do it. Smart. That didn't sound very smart. But go ahead. <laughs> okay. Okay, so here, but 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 I got to contrast the worldviews now. Okay. So in one in one worldview, the Darwinistic, naturalistic, it's chance-based mutations, something like that. That's neo-Darwinism. Neo is the mutations. Darwinism is the selectionism, selection, and so you throw in some 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 accidental differences, and then those get supposedly selected by who knows what. Um, and then that, that's what the story says about how one beak got one way and another beak got a different way uh, uh, during, the, the, uh, during the history of these birds. Okay, that's the story. And now here's the thing. It's so powerful because it's so simple, that story. Well, we have a completely different origins possibility that we want to consider. And that's what we're working on at the Institute uh, right here in Dallas, uh, Institute for Creation Research. And that, well, that possibility ha has to do, has nothing, almost nothing to do with neo-mutations or Darwinism. 
Darwinian selection. Almost nothing to do with that. So why not compare these these origins options side by side? Can we do that okay. for a minute? Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated by it. I mean, you're 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 literally saying that the data that's coming in now, the science that we're seeing now that we can do is showing neo-Darwinism, mutation, evolution isn't necessarily what led to the big beak and the little beak, let alone all the animals, you know, coming from a from a simple celled creature. Well, that's the conclusion I'm going to get to. Okay, okay, okay. But, uh, but you I'm can just, work. You can literally scientifically take us through that. Well, yeah, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Let's try on these different options. Okay. Let's try on these different explanatory uh, models. So that's the Darwinian model. We've described that. What about a particular? Um, creation-oriented model that does allow a divine foot in the door, if you will, that does allow miracles to have happened. So if we have a theistic God who exists outside the universe, who created the universe and can interact in it anytime he wants, that's the God of the Bible, okay, uh, then miracles are possible, okay? So what about the, 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 my atheist friends would say, but then you can't do science because you don't know if that was a miracle or not. Well, that's... That's a, that's a red herring. Okay, Of, of it course is. you can know if it's a miracle or not. Uh, because it would go against science. The, it would go against the norm. It would go against the... The way you recognize a miracle is that it goes... A, that's true. <laughs> that, that it goes against the natural. That's funny because that's, that's a great point. The whole point. They're basically saying if you define a miracle as a miracle, it can't be a miracle. They're literally missing the entire point. Totally. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. good. Yeah, totally. So I got to use how, that. Where did this bird come from and, and its ability to change... I mean... Does it have the ability to change, or does the environment have the ability to change the beak from the outside? So Darwin, he was all about the outside, all external. He's like, yeah, the environment did this. It was maybe shortages in food, or maybe weather patterns, or maybe, um, or maybe um, predators, you know, influences from the outside that forced these creatures to, um, to uh, adapt over time through uh, chance-based, um, okay, in contrast. Okay. In contrast, what, what, let's try on this model and see if it fits the new genetics data that are coming in that I'm about to describe. Uh, what about this idea that, that the originally created birds um, were endowed by their creator with the inalienable right <laughs> oh to, to adjust their own <laughs> beaks good. by themselves and equipped these creatures with the tools necessary to develop from within these little eggs either big beaks or small beaks. And they're not that much bigger. They're not that much smaller. But this is a possibility that we ought to at least, we ought to at least see if it fits the data, I think. What if the animals are endowed by their creator, these finches are endowed, to create either big or small? Like they, they have the they information. They the adjustment from within themselves. I mean, that's a poss that's a logical possibility in a theistic universe. I, I grant it. That's okay. That would make sense. A God could program something that has that ability. Now, how would we test and see if that's what we're looking at? One good way is genetics, because the programming would mostly entail the genetics, the genes, and so um, so as biologists um, do great quality work in observing and asking and answering the question, how does this work? 
Um, regardless of worldview, they're pulling in good answers. Okay. And these good answers are, are leaning toward a, a, um, a more creation-friendly option for the answer to the question, how did it get here? Here's where I'm going with this. They tested the genes that they looked for. Are there, are there genetic differences between the bird with the big beak, bird with the small beak? Is there a genetic? Okay. And they found a gene. There's an, there's an allele. There's two different versions of this gene that, um, that helps the, the developing baby bird develop a, 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 um, a thicker beak. Then the, a different team found another gene that helps the, de the developing, the developing <laughs> baby bird develop a longer or shorter beak. And so what does that mean? Does that, so, so they're finding genes, and these genes have slightly different versions of, each, of the same gene. Okay, different version of the same gene, that's our textbook, our old definition of an allele. It's actually more complicated than that, but we do have genes there are some alleles that just reduced that, okay? A different version of the same genes. Does that make sense? It does. So I'm thinking back to what I learned in, in school, and I don't know if this means it's changing or not. What I learned is you get half your genes from your mom, half your genes from your dad, and so, you know, the, 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 the most, um, you would know the word, but the, the most, uh, like the blue eyes are, dom the dominant gene takes over a recessive gene, and so that's what determines whether they have the short beak, the long beak, the thick beak, the skinny beak. That's is that that's what you're talking about? Okay, that's that's a Mendelian okay. named after Gregor Mendel. That's a Mendelian inheritance pattern. Okay. And it doesn't describe most traits. Really? But it does describe his pea plants, the traits in his pea plants. Okay. So most most traits are are um or, or phenotypes, our new word for the day. Yeah, our phenotypes, the phenotypes <laughs> yeah. of the peas and the Determined fitches. through uh, other inheritance patterns um, where you might have, um, um, there's one inheritance pattern where the higher the number of genes um, gives you better expressed. So it's not like dominant and recessive. It's like this one's turned on, but the other five are turned off. Oh, so the, you, the, the, the have skinny your, beak and the thick beak and the, those, those genes are all in there. Is that, forgive me for, I'm trying to follow this. Well, I got distracted by the Mendelian inheritance. Okay, okay. Thing. So let's go back to the beaks. Okay. <laughs> so what, yeah, so, so those of our listeners who have heard about dominant and recessive inheritance patterns, yes, that's exactly what we're talking about. But that's just baby step genetics, okay? And what I was trying to say there was there are many other inheritance patterns where different genes combine in different ways to ultimately give rise to uh, a trait as it develops hmm. in um, it, from an egg, okay? Okay. So there are genes. Now, when they discover this gene for beak thickness, when they discovered this other team, a gene for, and uh, these discoveries are coming out just within the last, within the last uh, 10 years. So maybe some of these five years ago, something like that. It's just now coming out. It's really exciting. What that tells us is that you don't need any finches or tanagers to die. There's no survival of the fittest here. It's just you need some of these to have one version of the gene, one allele, to be expressed, and others have another allele to get expressed. Okay, no death of the unfit required. In other words, 
we the genetics are showing that they that the that the different alleles that that help determine the different beak shapes and sizes uh, those are already embedded in the creature exactly consistent with what the creation based model would predict saying what if god endowed these creatures with the blueprints to deploy these different trait options for different reasons at different times we don't know maybe it's random maybe it's not random let's investigate that this is an exciting new era of biology and we're thinking along the times of engineered biology and we're thinking in terms of we've been looking for mutations to explain everything in biology for the last hundred years and guess what they don't explain anything but diseases <laughs> wow. we need to look elsewhere and we're and these evolutionary biologists are finding almost by accident oh this is not happening by death of the unfit it's happening because the options are already in there alleles, oh, wow. alleles are already in there so and it's so, almost like when darwin said oh mutations cause this it's almost like when we followed that, that stopped us from doing the science that they're doing now to be able to, to actually discover what is causing it. We kind of almost put science on pause for a little while. Is that? Uh, is well, that... well, I mean, technically, Darwin didn't know about mutations because he that's that's a genetics. So genetics came after Darwin. So it was the okay. it was the post Darwin followers that yeah. introduced mutations as what yeah. did evolution. What so, what produced it? So Darwin. Uh, we, we call that Darwinism, the selection part. But then the neo-Darwinism came in the 1920s and 30s. Okay. And that's where they said, oh, let's, let's, let's have our um, difference generator be these accidental random copying mutations. errors. Yeah. And we're learning there's the random mutations, the random copying errors are what bring diseases. They're not what are responsible for the changes that they were trying to say that they were responsible for. Um, by and large, they're not. Okay. So most of these, most of these uh, adaptive... Um, differences in um, what, what do I mean? What do I mean by an adaptive difference? I think that a small, smaller, thinner beak, or a thicker, longer, larger beak, something like that, those are adaptive differences. Okay, so one beak option might be better suited to uh, to exploit a particular food source than the other beak option, and the other beak option has its own niche, and that helps these two birds who came from the same family, maybe not that long ago, to actually live in the same place and eat slightly different foods so that they can coexist. Uh, niche partitioning is, I think, one of the phrases that ecologists use for that. So in other words, the bottom line here, as we're seeing it is, whoa, the genetics, now that we're sequencing these genomes and, look, and trying to look for, okay, are there any are there any patterns in the genes that match the phenotypes that we're seeing, these differences? And, and they're finding, oh, these guys have this version of the gene. Those guys have that version of the gene. And they both, they, they both can still interbreed. And when they crossbreed, their offspring deploy the same set of differences. So they might have a, a clutch of eggs that hatch. And you might have uh, some of the babies have the smaller beak. Some of the babies have the bigger beak. You know, it's, so it's just, it's genetics. It's all genetics. It's all, it's all the recombination and mixing and matching and shuffling the deck of all these alleles, redeploying them uh, to make these different options and these trait options. So that's one, so th that's one way that we can discern between these two models. 
it, so the one model is random, nature only. The other model is they were endowed with these options and blueprints, okay? What are we finding? We're finding the genetics that confirm the blueprints. What else are we finding? They're not dying, necessarily. Uh, they can deploy these trade options just like that without dying. Uh, so the, there's no death of the unfit that was part and parcel of, of the selection that Darwin described. To go from little beak to big beak, it was, oh, if I remember correctly, the dry season, they didn't have the fruits, all they had was the nuts, skinny beak died, big beak survived. Yeah, more of the skinny beak died right. than did the, the big the, thick beak right. to survive the, the drought season. And that's and, where the changes were happening. Yeah, but then it bounced right back. Yeah, and then it went back. <laughs> and so what? And so, did the environment? Did the did the, the lack of availability of food kill off a bunch of finches? They are assuming that it did. That's true, because that's what the model describes. Before we're even approaching the data, before we even collect the data, we're assuming these guys are no are uh, the thin beaks are no longer around because they must have died off because their beaks couldn't penetrate these seeds. But maybe it's not that. Maybe it's, um, uh, it, it, maybe it's just because, um, well, here's a crazy one. If, if the creator is a super hyper genius, he might have even given these animals the ability, these mothers and fathers, the parent animals, the ability to detect factors like calories, food availability, and to send messages to the developing babies to develop in a certain trajectory, certain traits that actually fit and meet the needs that are required uh, or, or better suited to the particular. And in other words, are these creatures actually, I mean, could it be that they're not only designed to deploy these different trade options, but to deploy them in a way that better suits the environment that the parents experienced? Wouldn't that be, how would we test for that? Drum roll. Uh, I wouldn't bring it up if it wasn't you, actually happening. <laughs> I mean, you got me curious. Like literally the dad bird can experience things in the environment. When he fertilizes the egg, you're saying somehow his experiences are going to help direct how the baby chick develops. Uh, yeah. And so, so this is a whole new field. And uh, some of the messages that go from um, parent to germ cell, sperm or egg, uh, some of those messages are encoded onto the DNA by epigenetic markings. Epigenetic. It's like these markers that ride on top of epi, the genetics, the genes, on top of the genes to shut them down so that the baby, as it's developing and unfolding and accessing its DNA that it just inherited, it's, it's shut down. It's like, it's like a, epigenetics are like a paperclip clipped onto pages of an encyclopedia. And as the, as the bird is un, opening the page of it, it's like, I need this information, I need that information to develop this feature or that feature or to build a mitochondria or to make this protein or that protein. It, it runs into the paperclip and goes, oh, I'm not going to need this part. And it saves that information for another generation. So skips it's still it. in there, but still it just skips there. it. It skips it and it's... And it's uh, um, sequestered by the epigenetic patterning that it inherited. So not only do these creatures inherit their genes, raw genes, but they're also inheriting epigenetic markings 
that help to regulate which genes are, are accessed at what times. Another um, exciting discovery uh, along these lines is um, RNA. This is, this is like, this is just discovered like four or five years ago, and there's a huge field opening up now uh, where there's actual RNA molecules that get transferred into the egg cell straight from the mother into the it's a sperm cell straight from the father and then that rna once it reaches inside that that germ cell it gets reverse transcribed back into dna and it becomes part of that that next generation so we are actually inheriting birds are fish are mice are all all these studies showing these creatures are inheriting not just um you know the same blueprint that its parent had, plus a few mutations. Like, that's what I grew that, up believing that's and what being I'm thinking, taught. Yep. But they're also inheriting messages uh, from directly from the parents. And even secret some of these... Codes. Some of these <laughs> secret codes. Secret codes. Hey, honey, I just want you to know this about your mother. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but it's literally putting in... But think... Yeah. I, I'm... I'm 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 wondering how and how would they know this? How would you figure that out? How would you figure out that oh it's not just giving what I learned half the DNA from mom, half the DNA from dad and then the mutations and then okay, progressive recessive. It's actually adding more data to that based on its life experience. Yes. Based on the Yes. And the addition of the data from its life experience requires its own suite of cellular mechanisms that also must have been put in place by our great creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the very beginning. Well, you got to tell us what kind of messages and what these things are doing then. Oh, there's one experiment that's now pretty famous with the mice and um, exposed to... Um, um, okay, the parents were exposed to shock treatment. Oh, that's... <laughs> yeah. When Peter, they don't... <laughs> when they were given a certain smell, uh, odor. And so every time they sniff this odor in the in the little mouse box, they gave them a shock. And, um, and then, next generation, those, parent, those tortured parent mice, they have kids, and as the mice are developing, all they did was expose the, the next generation of mice to the smell, and they freaked out like they were getting shocked. And so they, so that's, how, that's the kind of experiments that they're running, and I know it's sad for the poor micey poos. Yeah, but, but still, so they, the parents literally passed on, if you smell this, this means shock. Shock's coming. Get ready. This means panic. Panic. Uh, and and hide and find security and safety somewhere. Yeah. And the baby mice, never having been shocked, just Correct. the smell brought that to them. Yes. They Correct. literally took something from their life experience. Transferred it to the next generation. Yeah. And some of these messages can go six generations down the line. Boom. I mean, you know, Canorhabditis elegans, the little groundworm, Geneticists are studying that like crazy. We've got the whole genome sequenced, and we're looking at genes in that also. It's the same. They even, little roundworms, they're almost invisible. They're tiny, and they're all over the soil everywhere, and they're inheriting messages from their parents too. So, so wow. And so, in other words, not only do I say, man, Darwin got this so wrong, and the neo-Darwinists got it even more wrong. <laughs> yeah. Not only that. But the creator is more genius than I ever could have imagined him to be. Wow. To create these creatures, to inherit traits, and to just, you know, like static creatures, like, oh, I'm going to be the same as my parents. 
They can be, but they can also deploy trait differences that respond to specific issues that the parents experienced. And even some specific issues that they experienced in their own lifetimes. Think of tanning. Your skin gets dark because of exposure to the sun, to, to UV. To UV, yeah. And um, at least mine does. Well, yeah, my, my, so, I don't, my, some of, mine some turns of us, red. Like okay. You, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's so in healthy humans, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yes. Appreciate <laughs> yeah, that. Healthy humans. <laughs> we, have this, we have this ability to adapt to that particular issue. That, but because we have sensors that are detecting what's happening. And, and, in, and in that case, it's sensors that, that there's several hundred uh, proteins that are called DNA repair enzymes uh, and uh, pathways. And they're scouring your DNA in your skin cells. And if there's a whole bunch of damage, which is what UV causes, then it says, man, we got so much damage here. We need to do something to protect our DNA. And they send that message within the cell to say, okay, start start making more melanin, please. And it produces that melanin, and it puts a protective melanin shield above the nucleus so that when the UV ray comes in the cell, it hits the melanin, which absorbs the UV, shielding and protecting the DNA beneath it. So that's wow. why you start to look tan uh, after that. That's just in your, your own life. literally responding. Literally responding. But it's detecting. at the genetic level. But look, it's detecting a particular problem that it's pre-programmed to detect. And then it's it's processing that. It's going, okay, what do I do with this information? Hmm, maybe I should protect the DNA. How do I do that? So it all has to be in place all at once at the same time from the beginning, or it's useless. It's a pre-programmed response. It's the response. It's the detection, the logic center, and then the appropriate response. It's all already in there. So the idea of the blind watchmaker, the idea of yeah. Darwinian, or uh, uh, Richard Dawkins, it kind of blows that out of the water. We're seeing incredible design inside the genetics of worms and mice and apparently our skin cells, from what I got gathered so far. <laughs> and uh, finch beaks. And finch beaks, yes. So we got four. Uh, you have more examples? Yeah, we do. Uh, oh, well, before you do. Yeah, plenty. Before we do, uh, I got to let social media go. Facebook and YouTube, thank you guys for uh, hanging out with us. And Rumble and Twitter and whatever else we're on, thank you guys for hanging out with us. If you want to watch the rest of the show, you got to go over to creationtoday.org and you can watch the rest of this show by partnering with Creation Today. Sounds to me like where we're already at, though, Dr. Brian, is the Darwinian, neo-Darwin approach to the varieties that we have in the world today is not holding up to the genetic information that we're discovering today. That's right. And we're about to talk about the other icons of evolution. So stay tuned if you want to see, <laughs> uh, uh, if you want to hear about uh, how genetics is overturning. Um, uh, let's talk about uh, the stickleback fish, the blind cave fish, and maybe we'll try to get to the peppered moth. Dude, PZ Myers, you better turn in, you and your stickleback boy. All right, let's get to, let's get this underway. Thank you guys for hanging out. I'm going to continue with the partners over at creationtoday.org.